Matthew 6, 5 through 15 is where we'll be. I'll get there myself too. Today we're, we're, we're learning about prayer, right? Um, and and if I, we'll see what time we have to maybe we'll do what I had planned, but um, more likely than not, we won't. You know me. So um, before, we, before, we get, before we dive in and actually read uh, this week, I want to pause and um, kind of bring our, our memories back to where we, where we have been and where we're going. Um, last week, we reviewed the qualifications of elders and deacons as kind of little pause into this Matthew series that we're doing. And We'd finished up before that with Jesus' teaching right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount about giving to the needy. And in that sermon, one of the phrases that stood out to me from Ricky's preaching, uh, he had, I'd put it in my own scripture Bible, uh, motive is the matter. Right? Motive is the matter. And I see some of you nodding your heads. You remember that. Jesus wants us to think about our motives behind the good things we do. Um, prior to this part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus as we've been saying, was moving back that line, right? We talked about that from where the Pharisees has placed it. All along in his preaching on various subjects, Jesus is showing that interior motives, heart issues, and ultimate affections are what really is the issue. The Pharisees said, according to the law, you shall not murder, and if you do, you'll be liable to judgment. And Jesus said, no. Even if you harbor anger, if you're angry with your brother, you'll be liable to judgment. So the outward action of murder starts somewhere long ago with the anger that grows to hate and becomes an action. So he's saying, look, for, look to the heart first. That's where it begins. And he says this regarding lust and oaths and divorce and so on, right? Well, as we discussed motive is the matter regarding um, last time, we've been discussing that regarding sins, but now we kind of turn to to the righteous acts we do, right? Giving to the needy. He says the same thing. Motive is the matter. We see Jesus begin to teach at this point not only about sins we need to reflect on, but on the righteous acts, the good things we do. We need to search our hearts not only for affections that could result in sin, but for those that can result in good works. What I'm trying to say is that even the good works that you do could be done for the wrong reason. And if so, the good works are really no good. Or at least they're not pleasing to God. This is what Jesus was getting at when he said, uh, in your giving to the needy, right? He says, beware of practicing your righteousness. This is just a little bit before the passage that we're going today. You can probably read it. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. He goes on in the next sentence to talk specifically about giving. And like today as we focus on prayer, Jesus says, when you give, he expects you to give because of what he has given you. But if you are giving to others so that people can look at you and see what you're giving, and that you are a giving and righteous person, then really your giving is selfish and not pure before God. So again, Motive is the matter. Check your heart, church. But the first sentence of chapter 6 also applies further down to our discussion today as well on prayer. 
Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Church, let's keep this phrase in our mind. Motive is the matter. What is, in your, what is your motive? What is your heart concerning prayer? And then, after this, we should consider actually what our next thought might be as the disciples asked Jesus in Luke 11, well, Jesus, how do we pray then? Well, today then, we're going to look at what Jesus says we should and shouldn't be doing in prayer and then turn to look at Jesus' expert teaching through his model prayer. We're going to cover one, Jesus expects believers to pray. Two, one's motives in and behind prayer. Three, Jesus' masterclass on how to pray. And then four, some final thoughts and practical suggestions for growing in prayer. So let's, let's get going and, and read our, our passage today. It's chapter, Matthew chapter 6, 5 through 15. I'll read it and then we'll get going. Jesus says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus goes on, he says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, as we get rolling here, I want to acknowledge that there is actually a lot more, script, a lot more Scripture concerning prayer that we won't get to. Um, and what we're, a lot of what we're going to be talking about today is, is kind of that quiet time prayer where you can sit down. But I want to acknowledge that there's a lot of different types of prayer. There's that spontaneous type of prayer that we, we just you know, won't address on, on some of this. So I, I want to acknowledge that. Um, we could do a whole sermon series on prayer and still not plumb the depths. So this is just one sermon. There are whole books and essays written on prayer. And I'm going to acknowledge right now that you're getting a sermon from not a master in prayer. All right, I'm learning, growing, and striving to get better at this myself. So today, while acknowledging this and referencing a few other places in the Bible, we're going to be focusing our attention on what Jesus said and what our master, our master prayer, had to say about praying. Let's look again at verses 5, 6, 7, and 9. Just the beginnings. What does it say? And when you pray. But when you pray. And when you pray. And then he says, pray then. A command like this, he says. Praying is something we see every Christian should be doing. It's a when, not an if, 
But I'll say while many of us and most of us pray, it's also something many of us say we struggle with. And I want to acknowledge this right up front, that, you know, while we say we're Christians and we pray, how many of us would raise our hands and say that we have the kind of prayer life that is taught and practiced in the Bible or that we see from some of the great saints of old? How many of us could raise our hands and say, yeah, I could do better? Why then do we find it so difficult to pray? Why don't we have the type of prayer life we want and think we should have. Those are some of the things we're going to... I want you to think about those things, uh, but we're going to kind of address some of those things, and I hope this passage today will help us and encourage us toward a rich prayer life with the Father, our Father, maker of the cosmos, He who holds all things together, and He who, in Jesus, died to bring us to Himself. Wouldn't you like to be face-to-face face-to-face with the Father, the King of the universe, every day, to pour out your heart to Him and sense Him listening to you and loving you. I believe that's all here in this passage and what Jesus was getting at here as He was teaching on prayer. It's not only important that we pray, church, but as we see through Jesus' instructions on prayer, how to pray well. Again, like I said, prayer is not optional. It's for our good, for our godliness, our sanctification. And simply because it's an outpour, it's a result of the love we experience because of His love for us. Because of that church, we pray. Let's read verses 5 and 6 again. This is about motive. Jesus says, And when you pray, You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, instead, he says, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Again, heart issue, right? Motive is the matter. But does it mean we don't pray in public at all? Obviously not. We do that here, right? We're in public prayer. Um, Heart issue. What he's saying is don't pray for a pat on the back. Don't Don't pray so that you can be seen by others as pious and righteous and holy. That would be a sinful motive. That would be selfish and at the heart of it, opposite of what you intend. Instead, prayer is to be authentic to sincerely enter in communication with God. Well, what about, how about this? What about those of us who feel awkward praying in front of others, (laughs) right? How many of you feel awkward praying in front of others? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, why? Why do we feel that way? If we're, at least, also, I'll speak for myself. It's just a little bit of a Pharisee in me, right? I don't want to embarrass myself with awkward words in front of other people. I want you to think I'm good at it. But in our church cross-life, here, this is not what we desire, and this is why we pray so much with each other and out loud. This is not how we look at each other in prayer this way. At least that's what we strive for. We as elders 
and I speak for many of the others in the church, love to hear the saints pray. We love it, no matter how eloquent or awkward. Remember, God looks at the heart. And the Spirit also intercedes in our prayers as well. Somewhere, someone, somewhere once said, he turns our prayers into what we would pray if we knew what God knew. So, don't be afraid to pray. And don't be afraid to pray out loud. In front of the internal king, an eloquent prayer and an awkward prayer, are, they're not that far apart. And as, we see, as we'll kind of see later, we learn actually more about God from each other as we pray in community together. But bringing it back around, when we pray, we humble ourselves and earnestly seek God and not seek approval from others. Verses 7 and 8 then. And when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you even ask Him, Jesus says. Again, what's the motive then? Well, the key, the key phrase here is heap up empty phrases. It says that in the ESV, which is what we're reading out of today. I liked, I like there's a few other um, translations. I really like the NASB version where it says thoughtless repetition. Okay, so if we read it here, it says, and when you pray, do not pray with thoughtless repetition. NIV says babbling. It's kind of one of my least favorite ones. Um, another one, which again is just a paraphrase, not a translation, but it kind of gets at some of it. It says, don't pray with formulas or programs or advices, peddling techniques. Okay? What does that mean? That, means, that, that phrase means to coerce God through some formula to get what you want, and that's the heart of it. I'm going to get what I want by using many, many <laughs> formulas, words to get, so that God will hear me and I get what I want. This would be treating God like a genie for your own purposes. This is the matter of the heart Jesus warns us against. Don't do that. He says, don't be like them. Instead, take your wants to him open-handed, willing to let go of it, with the desire for your wants to align with his wants, to align ultimately with his will. Open-handed. Okay, and then we're going to fast forward to, for this part to verse 14 and 15. I'm going to group this here. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will God, Father, forgive your trespasses. Um, Jesus is reinforcing a petition in the prayer, which was right at the end of the prayer. He says, uh, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Here, Jesus is asking, really, at the heart of it, again, motive is the matter, right? Can you ask God for forgiveness when you're not willing to forgive yourself? And going further, even further, if you think, can you ask God for generosity, for love, for mercy, for justice, when you're not willing to do and give likewise? So search your heart as you're praying, is what he's saying. Sobering, right? And humbling. Motive is the matter. 
But Jesus is telling you to check your heart in all of this. And as you do, you begin to get to the heart of the prayer. Prayer then is communing with God, aligning with his will, plumbing the depths of your heart, asking for forgiveness and for change to be like Christ and for him to use you to bring about others and the world in the same way. So then let's, let's go to the, the prayer then. So he says, check your heart in all these things. And if you're really seeking God, here's, here's how to pray and, and, and to, to pray well. He says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, we read that, and for most or all of us, we could probably recite that from memory in, well, in maybe a, a different translation that you learned it. But in fact, these words are probably some of the most famous in history and are either familiar or memorized by both Christian and non-Christian alike. So there's a danger in the familiar, right? Like um, an example, like living next to the train. And you're so used to the train passing by, you have someone come in and they're like, whoa, what was that? What, what do you mean? What, what, what was, oh, yeah, oh, I, I've gotten so used to that. I don't, I don't, you know. So the familiar, we grow numb to it often, right? Cold to its meaning. And I'm afraid that's what we've done with this prayer and often continue to do with this prayer. So let's slow down and look at each part and dissect this prayer Jesus gave us to teach us how to pray. Also, this can be a prayer you can pray. That's what's great about it. Absolutely, we do. But it's also a model for your own prayer on how to shape your personal prayers. Okay, so let's look into each part of it. Um, but before we do, I'm going to break it up into halves. We're going to kind of see a little bit, the 10,000-foot the level, and then we'll get a little bit closer, right? So that first half, if you notice the first, um, I have to count them, three, we're going to call them three petitions and an address. The first few lines of the prayer are an address to God, okay? They remind us who we are talking to, acknowledge his sovereignty and rule over this world and all worlds, physical and spiritual realms, and finally, petition that his goodness and holiness, his kingdom, his will, would be accomplished now and in the future. This first half of the prayer is intended to draw us in, warm our hearts, change our perspective, and help us to pray as we shift our focus and petitions to ourselves. This is important as we learn how to pray. Often we'll just jump right into our needs without reminding ourselves of who we're talking to, who is in control, and who life is all about. This first part is important, essential, to help us rest in Him and then also to make our prayer lives rich and effective. The second half 
is a more personal needs focused only after we have first have the right mindset. The second half of the prayer is focused on petitioning that our daily needs be met, that we reflect on our sins, where we need to grow, how great a debt we've been forgiven, and how this should cause us to treat others with mercy, compassion, gentleness, patience, and forgiveness. And then finally, a petition for our protection from ourselves and further sin and protection from external evils, both spiritual and physical. So with that overview then, we kind of have these two halves of the prayer. Let's look a little closer at each line. The first line is the address, our Father. Well, we're going to say, take it all, our Father who is in heaven, who, who art in heaven. This is the address, and there's a lot in it if we sit and think about it. First, we address God as Father. In some places, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, it can be translated as Abba, Father. This address is a personal address, very personal, especially when we consider it who it is we are addressing. Church, this should cause us to pause and think, this is God, the maker of all reality, physical and spiritual realms, light years of space and intricacies of atoms and quarks. It is he who holds things, all things together by the power of his word. He who cannot be comprehended except for what he reveals of himself. In this dress, then, is also the gospel. For who could approach God, let alone, as John Calvin says, break forth in such rashness as to claim for himself the honor of a son of God, unless we have been adopted as children of grace in Christ. We can only approach the throne, the king, in such confidence as one with the intimacy of a son or daughter to a father only because of our intermediary, our great high priest and redeemer, Christ. As it says in Hebrews, Therefore, since we have now have such a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus is Son of God, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Church, pause and think, how great is that? How great that we can call him Father. Abba. Abba. Martin Luther also believed this address was, not, was a call to not just plunge right into talking to God, but to first recollect our situation and realize our standing in Christ before we proceed into prayer. Though he could rightly, God could rightly be in a position as a severe judge or impersonal king, he has given us the position to call him Father, Abba. Let this warm your heart. Stoke the fires of affection for him. Melt your heart and focus on God, he who is as close to you and loves you as a father to his precious child. Next line. Hallowed be thy name. 
This line has been turned over and over by many great church fathers as to the various meanings, as a diamond has many facets. First, however, the word hallowed, the word hallowed is sometimes lost on us today. The more familiar word we use is holy. It's sometimes used to, same, to the same meaning here. Sometimes it's translated, holy be your name. But how do we think of this and how do, how do we take this and think about it? Well, this part of the prayer is not only to acknowledge the greatness of God, His name, who identifies Him as He who is, I am, that I am, as in, holy is your name, hallowed is your name, but it is also itself a petition. Holy be your name. We can use this to focus on His holiness here, but as we move on, let's focus on the petition. What does that mean as a petition? What are we praying for when we ask that His name become holy? Luther asks, is it not already holy? The answer is, well, yes, of course. And he points out, it is a petition that in our use of it, His name is not kept holy. Luther points, as Keller, uh, uh, Tim Keller uh, points out, he says, Luther points to the fact that all baptized Christians have God's name put upon them. As name bearers, they represent a good and holy God. And so we are praying that God keep us from dishonoring the name by which we are called. That he would empower us to become ourselves good and holy. Another meaning to this position, pointed out by both Martin Luther and Augustine, is for God's name to be holy among the nations. That all peoples come to see Him and recognize His name as holy and glorified among all. That His fame and holiness would spread to all who call on His name. Facets, right? Well, here's another one. John Calvin puts in a thought that goes deep to the heart. He says, What is more unworthy than for God's glory to be obscured partly by our ungratefulness. In other words, we fail to keep His name holy when we fail to recognize who He is, what He has done for us, and we're not grateful for His grace and salvation. We fail to honor Him. So this petition is to not be that way. We petition Him to warm our hearts, our affections to Him, to experience a captivating, overwhelming, warming joy, a sense of wonder at His beauty. We do not revere His name unless He captivates us with wonderment for Him. So we pray, hallowed be Your name. Next line, Thy kingdom come. What exactly are we asking? Petitioning God when we ask for His kingdom to come? Well, let's focus on kingdom. Who is over a kingdom? A king, right? And if we recognize that we are a child of the king, then we are in that kingdom. And if we are in God's kingdom, then that means He rules everything about us. What are we asking for then when we are asking for His kingdom to come? We are asking for Him to rule over our lives. Our thoughts, our loves, our things, our finances, 
our relationships, every aspect of our lives. We also recognize as children of the king that we don't always let him rule as we ought. But this is what we are asking for when we request, when we petition, thy kingdom come. We're saying, Father, I recognize that you should rule everything, that your ways are better than mine, but that I don't always submit to your rule in this area or that area of my life. Abba, please change my heart to bring it in line with you, to desire you first, to desire what you desire, to bring your rule, your lordship over every aspect of my life. Change my heart to earnestly want to please you in everything. Thy kingdom come. This petition is also that inward groan for not only his kingdom to reign in our own heart, but for what is partial in his people now to be fully and ultimately fulfilled in the future. This will cause us to reflect on not only how we can bring about alleviating such things as injustice and suffering, poverty, and sickness now, but also recognizing the good news that someday his full kingdom will be realized. To pray, thy kingdom come, is to yearn for that future life of justice and peace, and to ask that your future kingdom may be the end and consummation of the kingdom you have begun in us. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. So much like thy kingdom come, we are asking for his will, his plan, his wants and desires to be had. But, we're, but if we're asking for his will to be done, his will, then we must reflect that we're not asking for our will to be done. We're laying down our will by asking this. In this, we must, we must search our hearts then. In your deepest heart of hearts, are you willing to surrender your will to His? What if His will requires you to bear sickness or poverty or disgrace or suffering or hunger or adversity? Then what? Can you say from the bottom of your heart, Thy will be done? This must cause us to reflect on on whose will we are asking to lay ours down for, though. So think this. Whose will are we asking while we lay ours down? This is why the address of this prayer is also so important. Father, you say, you who call me your son, your daughter, who loves me more than I love myself, you who spared not your own son, Jesus, to death, wrath, and separation from me. My Abba, I can trust you fully knowing this. And because I can trust you, I ask that your will be done in my life, not my own. But church, this is also a petition for God to help us come in line with his will. To make my will not fight his, but be in line with him. And it's a petition to be able to bear it when it is difficult. And to never forget him when I am blessed by him. Thy will be done. 
Church, can you see now why Jesus teaches us to begin by praying this way? When adoration and thankfulness come first, God-centeredness, it heals our self-centeredness, which distorts our vision. It changes our perspective and strengthens our faith and trust in He who has the power and the love to fulfill our next requests. It also brings our next requests in line with Him. Now that the prayer is nearly half over and our vision is reframed and clarified by the greatness of God, we can turn to our own needs and to those of the world. Give us this day our daily bread. Like I said, now that we've spent the first three petitions of prayer, recognize that God is our true wealth, our food, and happiness. Jesus is showing us that we can now reframe our requests with this in mind. To pray for our daily bread is to bring our needs to God. Daily bread can also be seen as a metaphor for the thing necessary to complete the word to, to complete the work He has given for us to do. Not luxuries, however, if He blesses you with more than you need, church, be grateful and abundant in your giving to others, but for your daily bread. We can pray then, as Proverbs 38 says with this in mind, it says, Give me neither poverty, lest I resent you, or riches, lest I forget you. And again, to ask for daily bread is to bring our daily requests to God. But because we know Him to be our true joy, wealth, and sustenance, we can, as again Tim Keller says, we can come with our needs, expected a positive response, but we do so changed by our satisfaction in Him and our trust of Him. We do not come arrogantly and anxiously telling Him what has to happen. Many things we would otherwise have agonized over, we can now ask for without desperation. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This petition is a petition of right relationships. And Jesus expounds briefly on it in verses 14 and 15 like we've already read. First, by asking his forgiveness, we are in the mode of confession admitting the sin in our lives, reflecting on it, and asking in humility that He might pardon them and so that we might be in right relationship to Him. But in confessing sin, we must also recognize the gospel, knowing full well that He is able and just to forgive our sins through Jesus' atonement, taking our place. Reflecting on this will bring us to humility, seeing that we are dependent on Him for salvation, not the good that we've done. And because our relationship with God is tightly knit with our relationship with others, if we have not seen our sin and asked for radical forgiveness, we will not be able to forgive and seek the good of those who have wronged us. But if we do recognize our need for forgiveness, and we recognize how deep our sin against an infinite God is, and how much He has forgiven us. How can we not forgive one another? How can we not forgive one who has wronged us? This petition asks for God to not only forgive us, 
but to help us in forgiving others. It also means that if we are holding a grudge, we should see the hypocrisy of seeking forgiveness from God for sins of our own. Says, he follows it up with Jesus, and I'll end it here, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your Father in heaven will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others those trespasses, your Father won't either. Right? Okay. Almost wrapping this up. And lead us not into temptation. I'm going to spend a little bit more time here, because this one, if you read it as bare as it is, seems a little awkward, right? It's a little bit difficult. At first glance, it sounds like Jesus is teaching us to ask God not to tempt us. But if we look at other parts of the Bible, again, that inform Scripture, inform Scripture, we can see that that's not the case. In James 1, we see that God does not tempt people. If you want to turn there, it's, uh, I'm going to read. I can wait for you. James 1. Let's go there. This is verse 12. I think. I don't actually have 12 there. I have 13. But it's 12, I believe. James 1, 12. Blessed is the man. James says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And he goes on to say, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Church, the fine line, so to speak, is the meaning and use of the word tempt, which can also mean trial or test. We know that the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness, and it says to be tempted by, the, by Satan, right? But it cannot be God that did the tempting. He allowed it and brought it, but he did not do the tempting. We also read a little bit more clarity on this in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 through 13. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 through 13. It says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. But God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may endure it. So we read here that being tempted or tested is normal. Okay? And we should be careful not to fail, honest in our weakness, finishing with a promise that God will provide escape or endurance. The fine line then, I'm getting there, between tempt and trial then would be that while God will allow situations where you'll be tested or trialed, He's not trying to get you to sin. That would be against His holy nature. God does not tempt you to sin. So the petition, lead us not into temptation, is not a request that we should never be tempted or tried. 
for trials and temptations are not only inevitable, but desirable, dare I say. The Bible talks of suffering and difficulty as a furnace in which many impurities of soul are burned off, so to speak, and we come to a greater self-knowledge, humility, durability, faith, and love. Like James says earlier in his letter, he says, Count it all joys, my brothers and sisters, when you do meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. This petition, then, is a request more along the lines of how Jesus put it in Matthew 26, 41, to not enter into temptation, or think about it this way, to entertain and consider the prospect of giving into sin. Okay? He says, pray that you do not enter into temptation. He's telling that to his disciples. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. What we're asking for then, I have this underlined, we're asking, what we're asking for is the ability to not be tempted away from God. We're asking for strength to endure the test the temptation, but for him to deliver us from it and from our own fleshly desires that desire to give in to it. We're also praying that nothing would separate us or distract us or estrange us from God, but that he would help us in that temptation and trial to love him and rely on him. Do you get that, church? Lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. So this is really close together, right? And some theologians group this with the previous petition as one petition together, but some of them split them out into a seventh petition. Either way, this is really closely, they're really closely tied together. And before we kind of wrap this up, it, you, in, in some translations it's also uh, translated as deliver us from the evil one, but they have the same thrust. While lead us not into temptation can be seen as petition for deliverance from the remaining evil and sin inside of us, this last petition, deliver us from evil, can be seen as a petition for protection from the evil outside of us, from malignant forces in the world, and from things emanating from the devil's kingdom, poverty, dishonor, death, and in short, anything that threatens our bodily welfare. So protection from inside and from outside so that we can serve him and stay faithful to him. Okay, where then, those of you who know this prayer inside and out, is for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Where does that come in? Why isn't that here? I don't read it in my Bible. Well, it's not included in the original text, actually. And it only seems to have been added later. However, I want to say, and as others have said, it's not wrong to pray it. And it, I believe it's a good way to bring us back into perspective. To realize that all dominion, power, and glory belong to God. That even after all the things we have brought to God, we can rest in the fact that He has all things under His control. He orchestrates all things for the good of those who love him. Finally, with this prayer, 
Notice the uses of the pronouns our and us. We've been, I've been kind of directing it as a, an individual personal prayer, model prayer, which it certainly is, but notice he says, our Father, bring us, us this day our daily bread, right? This is a, like I said, a, a format for personal prayer, but it also shows us that prayer is not stick, strictly a private matter. We should be praying these things corporately. Also, that, um, that through praying corporately, we might know God better. Okay? This is one of the important purposes of prayer, then, is to know God better and to know ourselves better. Well, how do we know God better and ourselves better through corporate prayer? I like how C.S. Lewis had put it. He argues that it takes a community of people to get to know an individual person. One person shows different sides to different people. Only through community can we see through different sides of a person. I want to give you just a personal example, and I just remember it clearly in my mind, is when we still lived in Arizona, and I was doing my thing, and you know, I, we'd been, Alyssa and I had been married for several years, and one night I went and visited her at work. She used to be a hospice nurse, and she worked overnights. And I went and I saw her care for these people and, inter, and, and, then, and then interact with other people at work. And I was like, who are you? I don't know this side. I don't know this person. Just so caring and, and confident. And just, it was, it was wonderful. I was like, wow, that's so cool. That's a little bit of what it is to pray in community you're going to see through your experience God in a little bit different way than I do. And then you'll pray in that perspective and, and I'll come to realize, oh, wow, that God's that way. I, I didn't know that about him, so on and so forth. It's important. We can understand and get to know God better through praying with others. So through prayer and how others pray through the lens of their lives and experiences, we understand different facets of God. Okay, so we've gone through that whole prayer. Now you think, well, how can I do this better, right? We're going to come back to what we had said at the, at the beginning. I don't know about you, but there's been times in my life that I've prayed, I've prayed better, and other times where kind of lose that fire, right? And I always say, oh, I want to get better at it, and then, and then I do, and I don't know. It's, it's, it's an up and down thing in my life. But I want to get better at it, because I realize, I remember when it is good. It's so sweet. So bringing it back to our original reflection, why is praying sometimes, or sometimes often, so difficult? And how can I have a richer prayer life? First, I would suggest that you use this model prayer, okay? That Jesus gave. Our Savior Himself, God Himself, gave as a springboard for our own prayers. It's a great place to start. In fact, fleshing it out like we just did, it's a great way to use it in your own prayer life. I would also suggest that, there's, that you read books to help you. Read what others have said about it. Um, 
this will give you ideas and encouragement on how to pray and pray well. One that I want to highly recommend. In fact, I brought these books with me today. And a lot of you, I think we give this one out to members, is Praying the Bible. If you haven't read it by Donald Whitney, it's a great little, it's a little book, and it's really very, very practical. Okay? And I'm going to be alluding to some of what he says in here. But he says some of the same things, again, in this book, again, that we give members, spiritual, or, uh, spiritual disciplines for the Christian life. There's a chapter in here on the discipline, spiritual discipline of prayer. And then if you want a wholesale thick book on it, this is amazing. Okay, This book I've read twice, I think, uh, Tim Keller's Prayer. Right? And uh, if any of you want to borrow I want it back, but if you want to borrow it, <laughs> and Anna has a copy of it, you can, you can ask us. I would love for you to, to, to delve more into it. These books are very practical, and in them, you'll also read the inspiring lives of those who became really good at prayer and how they did it. Second, there are, others, there are some gleaning, summarized suggestions from these books that I'll, that I'll give you. First of all, when we, if you've been like me, you, 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 you enter prayer and you just start petitioning like, like you've done, and you do the same thing every day. And you're like, well, he's heard me pray for the last five days. I don't really think I need to pray it today. I think I'll just keep going, right? And then so you start getting cold, to prayer because that's kind of what you thought prayer is. Well, first of all, as we see in this prayer, in Jesus' prayer, realize who you're praying to first, right? And what a privilege it is to come in conversation with Him who really is. That's what this book helps emphasize, right? How do we do that? Open up your Bible and read passages about His greatness and goodness and faith, faithfulness and love. Warm your heart to Him. Second, realize that no matter how good you get, prayer won't be perfect nor good enough, right? For the Creator of the universe. But that He gives you grace in this too. But you should want to get better at it in the way that it becomes richer and richer for you and not more boring and repetitive. Allow time. A third way, allow time for prayer, for it to be rich, and for you to get better at it through practice. Okay, I realize that not all of us are in the same stage of life, and you know, some of you really, if you're having you know, four kids hanging off your, your shoulders, like you may not have that, but you may not have the time that some, of, uh, uh, some others of us do. But so I don't want to discount the busyness in your life, but really I do want to also say in order to get good at prayer, you just you have to do it. You just have to do it. And the more you spend time doing it, the better you'll be at it and the richer you'll find it, which spurs on your love for Him and helps grow you into Christ-likeness. It's kind of a snowball effect. <laughs> the more you do it, the more you like it, the more you want to do it, and it just keeps going. As you allow time for it, number four, before entering into your daily prayer time, or as you do as much as possible, warm your heart to Him and stir your affections because you'll want to keep praying then. How do we do that? Through psalm reading. I suggest 
pick a psalm and really dwell on it. Through scripture describing his majesty so that you can warm up to him and your affections for him. Also a great way is through godly, again, these are different ways that you can try at different times too, through godly Christ-centered scriptural music. Sometimes I'll do that to help warm my heart to him. And the more your heart is tuned into him, like how the Lord's prayer begins, the more God-centered your prayer becomes, the richer your prayer life is, the more you want to keep praying, and the more it becomes a delight, and the less it becomes, dare I say, tedious and boring and repetitive. Another thing, expect your prayers to be answered, right? Matthew In Matthew 7, 7 through 8, Jesus alludes to this. He says, you know, come to me and basically, you know, who, I'm not like a father who, who would give a child a snake when he asks for something good. I'm going to give you better than even a father would give. It would be a lot easier if we could see the effects of our prayers within 60 seconds of finishing, right? But know that God answers prayers generously if asked within his will. And many answers will be spiritually answered, so be on your lookout here, okay? Physically and spiritually. So in this vein, I encourage you to keep a prayer journal. I know not all of us like the thought of keeping a journal, but really, when you, when you pray for something, write it down. You have something there, and you can reflect on it and celebrate when you see him answering prayer. I have one that I've written down, and I go back to it, and I'm like, I forgot that I prayed that. And it's answered. It's totally answered. It's clear as day. And it's something, it's very, it's something I treasure. Last little things then. Use Scripture to help you pray. And in fact, in our D groups, this is kind of how we shape things with our hear journals, right? We highlight a piece of Scripture. We meditate on it through our explanation application. And I tell my deep group that your response could be that prayer. And if we start doing that every day, and then we read some more scripture, we meditate on it, we pray, it becomes a cyclical thing. And your prayer then doesn't just one solid time, but it becomes a response to what God has said through his word. And it becomes a two-way conversation then. God has his word to you, and you pray back to him because of what he said to you. Another suggestion, riffing on the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> you, take the, you take it, you know it in your head, right? Our Father who art in heaven. And then start praying that in different ways that relates to you that day. And then you take the next line and, and start riffing on that line. And like I said, prayer journals and lists are highly recommended. Ultimately, prayer is a doing thing, church. It requires practice. It is a discipline. Sometimes it gets hard and you need to just stick with it. But while a discipline and a striving to warm your heart towards it and to keep at it, realize that even some of the greatest people of prayer struggled at times throughout their lives with it. Just keep with it. And finally, that while you continue to strive to improve your prayer life and seek Him more through it, the Spirit there, remember, is interceding for you, as it says in Romans 8, 26 through 27. 
He says, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. We thank you and praise you for your greatness and goodness, your mercy and kindness toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us to bring us to you. So thank you, Christ, for not only bringing us to the Father, but for the example you give us and for teaching us, your followers, your disciples, your students in life. I ask that you continue to teach us how to grow in our love for you and in our godliness for your glory. And thank you, Jesus, that you taught us to pray. I ask that you continue to teach each one of us to pray, that you would convict us to seek you in prayer, that we might learn to pray in the way you taught us and what we studied in it today. And I ask that all of us in Cross Life will grow in this way. And because you answer prayers according to your will, I know you will supply abundantly what we ask. Thank you for being so good to us. May we glorify you in our lives and through our prayers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.